Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to episode number 109 of Thyroid Nation Radio live talk show and podcast. I'm Dana Bowman, founder of Thyroid Nation and co-founder of ThyroidHealing.Yoga. And I'm Tiffany Mlanich of GratefulGarden.biz and MendingMedicine.com. Today we are talking with board-certified naturopathic doctor, um, Sorry, naturopathic doctor, Dr. Laura Bryden. I was like, wait a minute, that sounds funny. Naturopathic doctor, Dr. Laura Bryden, author of Period Repair Manual. And we'll be talking about hair loss, hormones, and your thyroid. That's an awesome topic, I'm telling you. I know, I know. Right? And it looks like she is already with us, so let's get the Thyroid Nation thriving. No further ado, good morning. Oh, good morning. How are you guys? Wonderful. We're so good. Okay? <laughs> That's great. Are we live? Or is this a recording? We are. We are live. Exciting. Okay, great. Yeah. <laughs> and where are you calling from today? I am at my friend's lake house in British Columbia, Canada, in, um, a place called Thai Lake. I'm just taking a moment out from my... <laughs> of summer day with friends. I love that. Oh, wonderful. How fabulous. <laughs> yeah. And what what is the weather like there? Is it uh, fairly cool? It's been hot. It's been hot day after day. So 35 Celsius. I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit. Hot. 90s something maybe or more. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I think it's just hot everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> not in Colorado, hit- it's not. <laughs> oh, it's not. No, it's beautiful. I'll go ahead here. and rub it in. Oh my goodness! Uh, well, Joshua Tree is hot. It's even hot this morning, <laughs> already. Well, very what? good. Go ahead, Dana. I was just going to say it's great to have you. We've connected uh, a long time ago, and it's 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 wonderful to finally have you on the show, Dr. Bryden. I I really appreciate you joining us, and uh, we have some a good topics and stuff to to cover today. So we want to get right into it. What do you think, Tiffany? Absolutely. And I am a super big fan of mm-hmm. your articles. And uh, so we're just really excited to have you on. So you, let's, you, can, let's just just, you can just call me Lara. To the conversation. Okay. Sure. All right. We, we'll do. Now, we always love to jump in, get to know the guests a little bit better. And so the listeners can also uh, get to know you. So a little bit about you and how you got into the health field and and any health issues that may have um, inspired you in this direction. I've been inspired by my work with patients primarily. I started out um, I started out work as a biologist many years ago, a couple couple decades decades ago, and then I um, trained as a naturopathic doctor in Toronto, Canada, and I just started out in quite general practice in small town Canada and was just treating everyone of, you know, every age and situation. And then slowly over time, I was just seeing more and more women for hormonal conditions, including thyroid, but also a lot of common period problems and perimenopause. And I just discovered through the decades that natural treatment can be very effective for those conditions. So that's more and more become my focus, leading me to where I am now. Well, wonderful. We are so glad that you are here, and uh, and we're going to jump right in and have you tell us a little bit about thyroid and hair loss. This is a, a personal one for me because I've always had very, very long hair since uh, I can't even remember uh, when, but uh, the thyroid, when I first was diagnosed with my thyroid condition, that was an enormous uh, issue for me and going back and forth on whether to cut my hair and um, so tell us a little bit about how the thyroid plays a role in hair loss. The hair follicle is sensitive to all kinds of hormones, actually, and it doesn't take much, you know, it doesn't take, hormones don't have to go, go out very much or go out of balance very much for hair to tell the story of that. So often hair loss, as you know, like can be one of the first noticeable symptoms of thyroid um, which, in a way, you can, we, can, we can be glad that the hair is sort of a, a marker that way of underlying right. issues. And also, the frustrating thing about hair loss, I'm sure you know, you've discovered or with the other women you've talked to, that there can be a bit of a delay factor, too. So you can sort of have something go out with your thyroid or you know, something go out with your medication, and then 
or, or change, and the, the problem with the hair happens a few months later, which um, can make, sometimes make it tricky to track that and figure out what's happening. And often, um, in terms of thyroid, the hair specifically needs enough of the hormone T3, which I'm guessing you've probably spoken before on your show and to your listeners about the value of having the activated T3 in place, potentially. Absolutely, yes. But we're always for more information, and sometimes people have a new way of saying it, so if you feel like repeating it, please go ahead. Yeah, please do. That's what I was thinking. (laughs) Um, Well, I would just say that, I mean, obviously the hair follicle ultimately, like all the cells in our body, requires T3 as the active hormone. And so if for various situations people can, um, various reasons people can be in a situation where they're not converting T4 to T3 adequately, and so there isn't enough getting through to the tissues, and one of those tissues would include the hair follicles, and so they can, um, yeah, tell the story that there's inadequate thyroid um, activation. With with my own patients, I often work very much looking at not just um, whether they need to take T3, but also looking at some of the underlying reasons why that that activation might not be happening, and I'm sure you know, sort of stress and inflammation can interfere with the conversion of T4 to T3. But so does a condition called insulin resistance, which I was hoping to speak to you guys a bit about today because I think that's another factor in hair loss. Yeah, so it, um, it, it directly interferes with thyroid by interfering with T3 activation. But insulin resistance also can cause a problem with male hormones or androgens. I actually listened into the interview you had with Dr. Fiona McCullough, a colleague of mine, another naturopathic doctor in Canada, and um, I love her work. And I just, yeah, I wanted to reemphasize with you guys how common that condition is, the condition of either, you know, it can be diagnosed as PCOS, uh, polycystic ovarian syndrome, but what I see is there's a lot of, even without reaching that full diagnosis, there's a, a lot of patients I see that have a, underlying problem with insulin that's driving up male hormones in their body and that can be going alongside thyroid and sort of be another factor that's um, affecting hair loss. Now, would there be other uh, symptoms involved, uh, Laura, like uh, acne or, or, you know, any kind of signature symptoms of of androgen issues yeah, that you exactly. see? Yeah, absolutely. So, the symptoms of androgens or excess male hormone um, could be, yeah, facial hair, acne, um, hair loss, and a particular pattern of hair loss, too, that is um, not just the shedding, but actually what they call miniaturization or the hair follicles becoming smaller over time, and um, so just thinner hair. And the other symptoms associated with this condition is when women are still menstruating, having periods that can cause irregular periods. That's one of the the key signatures. But um, the problem of the insulin resistance and the male hormones can continue even after menopause. So stopping periods doesn't mean that this problem, that it's the right result. Yeah. 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 And the other main symptom of insulin resistance is weight gain around the belly area in particular. And um, and then, of course, a, a you know, the, the, doing the blood work for doing a blood test for insulin and detecting that as a problem and androgens as well. Now, I imagine there's quite a few dietary changes that people uh, can do that can be very, very helpful with insulin resistance. Is that correct? Yeah, and the number one dietary change to make first is no sugar. So I feel right. I'm being, starting to be more clear in my messaging around this because. I think a lot of people have heard about the fact that they probably need to cut, reduce carbohydrates to help with insulin resistance. Um, And that is true, but with my own patients, I find that it's a lot more clear to just start with the the first thing, that the food that is most problematic for insulin is concentrated sugar, which is obviously, you know, um, soft drinks and desserts and but that would also include things that we sometimes tend to think of as healthy, like fruit juice and sweetened yogurts and granola bars and dried fruit. All of that can worsen or arguably cause insulin resistance. Now, just for those that don't know, uh, Laura, why is that? Is it the spike in blood sugars or what, what's really the mechanism that causes the problems with those foods? It's the fructose. 
So the high dose of fructose impairs insulin sensitivity in the liver. So it's very specific, and it's not actually to do directly to do with a spike in blood sugar. Um, although spikes in you know having too much blood blood sugar can eventually cause a problem with insulin as well. But the effect with fructose is a little more direct. And just to be clear, it doesn't mean that all fructose is bad. I want to say right from the start because what we tend to think, well, there's fructose in fruit, and fruit right. is healthy, so therefore, you know, fructose can't be bad. And of fructose in a small amount that you would get from just whole fruit, um, you know, a few, a few servings of fruit per day is totally fine and doesn't cause insulin resistance. But above a certain threshold, that's when the problem starts. And so for my patients, I will, I'll just try to make that quite direct for them. I'll, you know, I'll talk about some of the biochemistry in between, but at the end of the day, what's happening for them is sugar equals male hormones or androgens equals acne equals hair loss you know, the androgen type of hair loss, which can go, right. I'll just say again, it can go um, hand, like side by side with thyroid type of hair loss. So technically the the male hormone hair loss is different from the thyroid hair loss, but it's not unusual that I'll see both happening at the same time, which can kind of make for a double whammy of yeah, just frustration. Right, right, for Difficult. sure. Yeah. I know for me, uh, with uh, you know, I've been a food control diabetic for quite some time. But any type of small blood sugar fluctuation, like even if I wait too long to eat or something like that, I can have, <laughs> I can actually, you know, pull a few strands out of the bottom, which is kind of annoying. And if my blood sugar stays stable, then I don't, I don't have that. It's just mm-hmm. uh, fascinating. The hair is so sensitive. <laughs> It is. It's super sensitive, but keep in mind there's always a delay too, that, and that can make it that can make it um, that sort of two well sort of I guess six to twelve week lag time with hair can make it difficult to know when you're making changes or um, you know adding new treatments. You have to always sort of give it a few months, I think, at least uh, before you can tell how well that's worked or starting to work. I remember when I very first went on uh, a thyroid hormone and. You know, my hair was very healthy, and even though I was hypothyroid, my hair was still, you know, uh, very healthy. But, of course, I was taking omega-3s and, you know, uh, nutrients and uh, multivitamin and different things. But when I went on desiccated thyroid, when I made that shift from T4 only to desiccated thyroid, it took me about a year to get my hair back to normal. You know, that was that period of, of wanting to cut it. It was just fascinating uh, to me, mm-hmm. and you hear that a lot. Do you see that a lot, uh, Laura? When people go on uh, desiccated thyroid, is there something about the introduction of the T3 that the hair needs? Does it, you know, regenerate something? And I'm sure there's, you know, some kind of a scientific explanation for it. But um, you know, it took me about a year. So you're asking. So I mean, certainly T3 can be very good for hair. And so is your question like, why does it take? so long up right to yes yeah. yeah. you hear about that a lot in forums people complaining about you know their hair and hair loss and all these different things when they actually go on desiccated thyroid but i hear you talk about t3 being so critical to hair is there a, a reason for that period of time with the introduction of t3 oh where it gets a little bit worse with the introduction yes ma'am is that what you're saying? absolutely yeah. <laughs> I think that's okay. Fair enough. No, good question. That's just the the change in medication. The hair is so sensitive. I think so. Any, um, I would predict that's even just that sort of transition time between getting the dose right. Because often when you change from right. just a, a straight T4 to a desiccated thyroid or to oh, a good T4 point. T3, that people are under be, yeah medicated usually. Except yeah, they might just people be that know what they're doing. <laughs> Yeah, right. that's. I mean, because that, most doctors try to maybe start conservatively. It's like, okay, no, we need to go up with the dose, and then, but that time when you were slightly under medicated, that's, that's going to result yeah. in some hair loss a couple months later. So it it can be tricky. Yeah. Now let let me ask you another question, Laura, if you don't mind. It, when people have nutrient deficiencies, say for example, you know, uh, iron and different things, what role do those play? Uh, you know, not only in hair loss, but also in the thyroid and kind of the big circle of things. Any specific yeah, nutrients that you see? Well, iron is a big one. It's good that you mentioned that because the hair yeah. follicle has a very high requirement for iron. And I've, I read an interesting study where they demonstrated that no matter what the cause of the hair loss, whether it's thyroid or 
you know androgens or if if the iron if there isn't enough iron in place hair can't regrow so you could fix everything else you could have me finally taking the right thyroid medication but unless iron is also there you're not going to see the results for hair and a big thing with iron is of course women who have heavy periods have a lot of trouble getting their iron up and it be, again it become it does so many things with thyroid become this vicious circle because having underactive thyroid can make makes periods heavier which makes your iron go down which makes it really right. hard to kind right. of get on top vicious of it cycle. And you need, it is a cycle and you need iron for thar- healthy thyroid functioning as well so let me let me ask you not to jump off topic or anything yeah. but it's kind of a lead-in, to be honest. Iron can be such a tricky, uh, you know, supplementing with iron. Do you have any favorite Dr. Laura tips on uh, increasing iron for people? Like what type? Yeah. What, so I, I mean, I, I would certainly give a supplement when it's required. Fortunately, iron is one of the nutrients that you can test for quite easily. The serum, right. the iron studies, or serum ferritin on blood test is. Quite a reliable marker of where people are at for the, with their iron status. So, first look at iron-rich foods, which in, would include, you know, meat and eggs, um, green vegetables, and then look at ways to lighten periods if heavy periods are one of the reasons they can't get your iron up. And then I look at some of the the better quality iron supplements, like the one I use is um, iron bisglycinate. So it's um, much gentler on digestion than sort of just the ferrous sulfate that you might get from the pharmacy and um, easier to absorb. And, yeah, it can be very important for hair. Yes, and I I had a very difficult time not to keep referring back to me, but unfortunately it's one of the the best cases that I know of that. But I had a very difficult time switching on to desiccated thyroid in the beginning uh, because my iron was low and my, you know, my hemoglobin hematocrit were fine, perfectly right smack in the middle of normal, but my ferritin uh, was a two. So mm. I had a difficult time, you know, my physician at the time was telling me, you know, you're, you're fine. And then, of course, many forums later of, of different things, you know, asking for my ferritin to be drawn. And then I started uh, supplementing with iron, but when I very first went on desiccated thyroid, my ferritin was still too, and I had a very difficult time. Do you have uh, experience with that when people have, until they get that ferritin tested, having trouble with desiccated thyroid? Right. So you're saying um, the desiccated thyroid wasn't working for you until you got your iron up? Is that exactly? Yes. I had a very. I had to go back off it, and they said it was an immune response and. You know, then, I don't know, it took me almost a year, and then after many, many forums of reading many wonderful people like you and Mary Shulman mm. and, and all mm. kinds of Stop the Thyroid Madness, all these different things, I started supplementing with 30 milligrams of iron, mm. um, and then I went on desiccated thyroid, and then I was able to do it just fine, and I did very well and, and still do well on it. But in that initial uh, switch onto desiccated thyroid, I had a very rough go of it. <laughs> That's was, interesting. Yeah, I don't have a specific comment but like as to why that would being iron deficient would have made it more difficult for you to change the thyroid medication. Um, I mean, one thing we just should say about medication and iron, I'm sure most of your listeners know this already, but um, iron can interfere with the absorption of thyroid medication, any kind of thyroid Maybe medication. that was it. Because so, that's exactly how I explained it to my endocrinologist was I feel like I'm going to implode. It was like a, a pressure from the inside out, you know, almost like, um, you know, and I think Stop the Thyroid Madness refers to it as pooling, you know, where you have a lot of thyroid hormone that's not necessarily being absorbed because of the iron limitation. But now whether that's a, an accurate mechanism, I, I won't, you know, won't actually say that. But um, I did notice that when I was supplementing with, you know, 30 milligrams of the uh, biglycinate, I, I was able to then try it again, and I, was, and I did just fine on it. It was a very interesting, <laughs> very interesting mm-hmm. journey. We'll just give it that. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Any <laughs> other to, nutrients? I'm sorry, go ahead, Dana. I was just going to say, you know, it's funny because um, you're talking all about this, and I'm, you know, not really saying much. I haven't really had any hair loss, so I'm not trying to, to, you know, lucky you out of the conversation. No, I've always had, I've always had very thin, um, brittle 
hair, but hair loss has never been. Now, I should knock on some wood, right? Okay, sorry, go ahead. What are you going to say, this? <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay, so thin? aside, what's that? I was just going to say, when the hair is quite thin, I mean, that, that can be a, a sign that, yeah, you're not maybe growing back as much hair as, you know, if it, sometimes when hair loss is when it, well, sorry when sort of hair thinning is going on for a long time, it can um, not. I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean there's going to be like clumps on the floor or anything like right. that. It's just, it's, yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It can just be you know like my hair is very long. It's almost to the top of my fanny. But you know, uh, even brushing it, you know, there's there's times where you brush it and you're like, wow, you know, you're surprised that you even have any hair still on your head, you know. <laughs> but um, <laughs> But, uh, okay, so aside from iron, any other favorite uh, Dr. Laura nutrients that are super important to hair? Zinc. <laughs> I'd say zinc. zinc. Is big ones. Yeah. Um, zinc deficiency alone can cause hair loss. So, again, compounded with whatever else is going on, whether it's also a thyroid problem or also a problem with insulin and androgens, then, yeah, zinc can just make that all worse. So I test my patients for zinc. The blood test for zinc is not quite as reliable as the blood test for iron, but it's a starting place. And then just again, do you have a favorite a favorite amount, Dr. Laura? To, you know, is there a, is there a magic for, amount to supplement with? Yes. Yeah. Well, I guess it's a pretty safe amount is between 20 to 30 milligrams of zinc per day, taken with food, or it might make you feel sick to your stomach. But I often give zinc for hair. It, um, the best source of zinc, again, is animal products, meat. So if, for my patients who are vegetarian, then I almost routinely give zinc if, if they're right. suffering symptoms of zinc deficiency, such as um, hair loss or the kind of spots on the nails or low immunity. Those can all be signs of low zinc. Mm. And it, it's helpful for thyroid as well, actually. Zinc's one of the... Involved is one of the cofactors needed for the enzyme that converts T4 to T3. So right, so we do we do hear a lot about that magic zinc. Yeah. Now, do yeah. you also supplement with a small amount of copper, or are you you know people talk about that synergy between the two? Or are you okay with just the zinc unless there's you know signs of a copper deficiency? Yeah, I don't routinely give copper because actually a lot of some people have too much copper in their system. Mm-hmm. So. And I guess that's where the 20 to 30 milligrams dose comes in. Kind of stays in that safe is, zone. Yeah, if you stay at that zone, you're unlikely to deplete your body of copper. Because we get copper in foods. Actually, one of the best food sources of copper is dark chocolate. So, oh, really? mm-hmm. eat so we're all fairly replete. Yes, <laughs> yes. we are. <laughs> oh, see, there's my multivitamin. No, I'm just kidding. I have, I have my, um, my dark chocolate sitting right here from Theo. As a matter of fact. Oh, yes, that is one of my favorite chocolate companies. Yes. Good choice. Thank you. The dark one. Yep. Oh, my goodness. So I wanted to um, maybe um, just bring up a new, a new topic around hair loss now, if that's okay, because it's such absolutely. a common one, is that many types of hormonal birth control cause hair loss as a side effect. And it's a well-established side effect that the American Hair Loss Association has written about and warned about. And yet, for some reason, most doctors never mention it to their patients. <laughs> and I just find it quite distressing that sort of the lack of information around that, sort of the, the lack of awareness that women are, are given around potential yeah, issues. And especially if they're also struggling with a thyroid problem and they're just you know, not quite understanding why their hair is not responding as it should, it can be just an effect of hormonal birth control. How very well, and sad. While we're, while we're on the topic of birth control, yeah. I want to I wanna, I wanna let you jump in because I know um, you have some pretty wonderful opinions on birth control. Um, will you share some of those with us? Uh, you have your period repair manual and, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, I have a, I have a 13-year-old daughter. Tiffany has uh, three daughters. So, you know, it's, it's, it's an important topic to, to discuss as far as you know, as far as that goes. Absolutely. Let's do it. Let's do it. it. (laughs) Yep. So in my book, Period Repair Manual, I I make the main point that, you know, pill bleeds are not periods, that um, 
hormonal birth control, what the biggest problem with it, in my view, is that it shuts down our own hormones, our own wonderful hormones, and replaces them with this kind of synthetic hormone replacement, or not unlike the hormone replacement or HRT that we would give to postmenopausal women, except they're giving it to young women, and they're they're synthetic drug versions of hormones. It's not the same thing, and um, that I just feel like that has robbed women of you know the vitality they need for their own hormones. So my book, Period Repair Manual, is just a way to giving all sort of different options for women to, if they do choose to use non-hormonal methods of birth control, then there are also, I just want to assure everyone, there are also um, very effective solutions for other common period problems like period pain and irregular periods and all the, the reasons that someone might be choosing to use hormonal birth control to help, you know, to help with symptoms. Interesting. You know, that's the it's just such the easy go to. And you know, you hear so many people doing it. I was talking to a friend the other day who, you know, their daughter became active and they put her on birth control and I was like, you know, when you're talking to your friends you're like, Oh, you know Oh no. I know, she's young and you're like, Oh no, there's so many better ways but you can't just come out and say that, you know what I mean? You can't just I mean no. I suppose you can, but I don't. Let's put it that right. way. <laughs> Well, and I I remember having a friend when I was, you know, in in grade school, middle school, who was put on birth control, you know, for, you know, like you said, to help with all the symptoms and things, and she wasn't active. And so I just think that's that's so um, disheartening, and I hope it changes. I'm I'm thinking that you're one of the pioneers in leading that direction, Dr. Ryden. Maura, excuse me. (laughs) I'm a voice. I'm a voice in the revolution that's happening. And I'm convinced that future generations are going to look back at what we did with hormonal birth control over the last 40 to 50 years and just think of it as a very strange time for women's health, a time when we somehow thought that was okay to basically, you know, you know basically say, you know, castrate women with these drugs. Right. And yeah. It reminds me of the 60s when they were giving women the injection to dry up their breast milk. If they have the oh. brand new baby, here take right. this formula and we're gonna we're gonna dry up your breast milk. You're like, oh you look at goodness. that now and you're like, what? <laughs> yeah, there's so many t- so many things in medicine, isn't there? When we look back and think that was really strange that they were doing that at the time, but of course at the time all the doctors, everyone thought it was fine. Everyone thought it was everybody normal. thought it was fine, right? That's just yeah. the good thing is is I think that the future is is you know uh, changing significantly where patients are smarter because of doctors like you and, and, you know, they're getting a different voice rather than just the voice of a single physician. You know, of course, the Internet changes so many things, but it's kind of exciting because it's not so easy to fool people anymore because there's, you know, advocates on the opposite end that are saying that is not exactly true. And I think patients are getting smarter, and I think that's an amazing an amazing thing for the future of medicine. It is. You know what I think is what is I think needs to happen and what is happening is bringing women's health into the, the broader conversation as if it's sort of a normal thing. I know that sounds silly to say that, but I think for so long we've we collectively, including you know, medicine has sort of compartmentalized women's health. It's like there's there's normal health, there's real health, the kind of I guess, if you will, almost male version of health is the uh-huh. human body. And then there's all the pesky female hormone things, which are kind of on the side in this other box that we'll just, and sort of viewing them as quite complicated and we don't know what to do, so we're just going to put you on the pill. Like, whereas if you right. think of the body as our menstruation and our female hormones as integrated into our whole body physiology, then you see the value of menstruation. You see it as part of you know what a healthy human body needs to do it it just i feel like that really shifts the conversation and also at the same time makes it seem less less mysterious less complicated one of the messages in my book period repair manual is that you know it's not as complicated as you think there's a you know um the menstrual cycle has you know an intelligence that has a logic to it that and it responds very well to simple things dietary changes and reducing stress and can you know, it the, um, can create huge sort of dynamic, permanent changes, improvements to common period problems. 
that is that is a profound statement mm-hmm. just nutrition and how that changes i had horrible horrible cramping and of course was put on on the pill at 14 uh to relieve that cramping because i was basically doubled over and you know uh, it was absolutely horrible and then when i was able got to an age where i could you know my parents gave me food that they thought was healthy but it wasn't necessarily healthy for me and then when i was able to control my own food it was interesting because my periods just kind of they mellowed out i wasn't as moody prior to i didn't really have the pain and um you know it's just based on nutrition nutrition is huge avoiding sugar but what what else dr laura yes. would you recommend Natural treatments, yeah, for suggestions. Period, mm-hmm. For period problems. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, let's let's talk about a few. I'll, I'll, I'll make a statement, too, is that PMS, neither PMS nor period pain are normal. So they're common symptoms, but they're not normal. So women really can't expect to have just a period that comes every month with no discomfort, no problems. It's, you know, it's a... It's a nat- it's a normal natural thing that the body does. It's there's no reason it should have symptoms associated with it. And so my experience is that's that's achievable achievable for most people. There are exceptions. I at this point in the conversation I always do have to mention a condition called endometriosis, which is quite common, affects one in ten women and causes quite severe period pain. And that's a different situation. So I will just you know, for your listeners, if they have the condition of endometriosis, then I'm not suggesting that that can just immediately be cured by some of the things I'm going to talk about because it's a, quite a serious disease. But for people who don't have that condition, the rest of us, um, period pain responds really well. One of the first things I do is um, ask women to try for a few months, say three months, avoiding cow's dairy products. And that can actually, especially for teenagers, you know, young women, that can make quite a profound, quite a rapid difference. I think it works just by reducing inflammation in the body and, yeah, thereby easing periods. It often makes tends to make periods lighter when you cut out dairy products, even temporarily to try it. Interesting. Yeah. That's very interesting and, and good to know. Okay, well, writing that down or remembering that. Yeah, and just for the anyone sort of out there thinking about trying this for themselves or their, you know, daughters, it's um it's particularly cow's dairy. So I find that often people can have goat or sheep products or they can have um Jersey cow products which don't have they're quite different in that they don't have the same inflammatory casein protein that's in normal cow's dairy. So it still leaves quite a lot of doesn't put a lot of options to diet. Yeah, it doesn't have to be restrictive. Well, the fat molecule is very different between uh, cow and goat milk. It's uh, It's mainly the protein that's the primary difference. That's my understanding of it. It's the type of casein that's found in the different animals. Hmm. Um, It's a fascinating topic. I, I think we're one of the only few countries, really, that does a lot of, of cow milk, majority of the of the world utilizes different types, you know, goat and sheep and all kinds of different things. I, I think, isn't it, India, they do buffalo milk. Of course, they don't really do milk in oh, India they, they too much, milk. I don't think, do they? They do, actually, and they, they use cow's milk. But um, this comes down to this, we're really off on a tangent here, but I'm just going to say it because it's interesting. There's um, growing evidence that it, it depends on the type of cow, so it's the genotype or the genetic type of the cow. So cows who make... Interesting. A, a protein called A1 casein, their milk is potentially inflammatory for some people. Not for everyone, but for some people. And actually, the only countries in the world that really eat a lot of this A1 casein, this use particular kind of um, Holstein cows, are yeah, North America, Australia, New Zealand, <laughs> where I'm, you know, where I do my work. And <laughs> and uh, the UK, but large parts of like Southern Europe, India, they have the old style, kind of um, potentially less inflammatory cow dairy. Interesting. So, it is interesting. So the, right, that yeah. is very interesting. You know, you just want to ask that simple question. You know, of of how come we don't use that cow <laughs> to somebody? <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's many health actually. issues. I would imagine. 
Yeah, it's in Australia, New Zealand. They're quietly. I think they're they're breeding. You just have to sort of um, breed the cows to you know have a different protein and yeah. Anyway, it, it is interesting. I think it'd be beneficial for people in the long run and certainly for dealing with common period problems. It's a simple change to make. Yeah. Dairy. So sugar uh-huh. and dairy. Yeah, and. Beyond that, um, so those sugar, removing sugar and dairy can relieve yet yeah, um, period pain. Acne is the other big one that can be potentially worsened by both of those foods. PMS, and and I guess I would say for for something like premenstrual syndrome and PMS, it would also be just cutting out junk food generally. So right, you know, processed foods and um, packaged foods, chips and things like that are probably, you know, they're a bit inflammatory as well. P- we're starting to see PMS as an inflammatory condition, like so many things now. That's our understanding of, of different conditions, that um, the we- the reason we react, some of us react quite strongly to the drop, the natural drop in hormones that occurs at the end of the cycle is to do with um, just the health of the hormone receptors, and if there's a lot of inflammation present, that can make it more difficult for them to adapt to that natural transition. Because our hormones go up and down. That shouldn't. That's not a bad thing. We should be able to kind of roll with that, have some resilience around that. That's a natural cycle, right, Dr. Lowell? Yeah. That's something that the body has to do in order to, to preempt the period and all kinds of things. We, we as yeah. women are designed to do that that cycle and that shift, Correct. We are, absolutely. And hormones are power. especially estrogen is a very powerful, I, just, I think it's the most powerful hormone. It's, it's, I'm a, actually a huge fan of estrogen. I know it has some bad sides too, but it, um, yeah, we, when it goes up and down, and when also the other hormone, progesterone, goes up and down, we, we tend to feel it. Um, but if the healthier we are in general and the less inflammation in our body and kind of the more resilient our nervous system, the, the easier that, you know, we won't, we won't notice that as symptoms. So well, we need to be mind, promoting, you? embracing, uh, you know, our monthly hormonal shifts and things, as opposed to saying, "No, no, we don't want this," right? You know, I mean, this is not, you know, part of being a woman. Right. Well, this right. goes back to what I was saying for so long. We've sort of had this collectively this view that women's hormones are just pesky, basically, like just this kind of annoying thing, <laughs> you know. This, and that includes the the natural ups and downs. But I, I see it differently. It's like let's. Let's, if we value hormones and we know we, we want to have them, so we want them to be right. high, some, but they can't be high all the time because of their, how we make, the nature of how we make them. We are over, so men, here's an example. Men make testosterone every day. Women make the majority of our hormones sort of towards the middle of our cycle, you know, just before ovulation and just after, and then we have, it ebbs again. And then we, you know, we have um, a natural up and down. That's just that's the way it has to be. Um, so rather than curse that or you know be frustrated by that, just find a way, give your body what it needs to adapt to that and be well with that. Because the solution, the way they do it now is, is, okay, these pesky ups and downs of hormones, this is quite disrupting, so, disruptive, so we're just going to shut it all down, switch them all off with hormonal birth control and not have any of that. But mm-hmm. the problem is if you, when you do that, then you rob the body of the very hormones that it needs. And speaking of estrogen and progesterone, they are they are the best hormones for hair. Hair loves both of those hormones, actually. So we want we really do want them. Let me. We're kind of off topic, but but you cracked the door. So yes, yeah. when we talk about some of the. I have two particular questions, but one of them is is we hear so much negativity about estrogen. I mean, I, you're the first person that's been like. It's really good. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, let's give let's give estrogen a little stage time with you, Dr. Laura, just real yeah. quickly, you know. Tell people what it is that we need to love about estrogen because we hear so much negativity about it. I can know. You, can you help us in that department? I will. I'm happy to have that conversation because I, yeah, there is a lot of ne- negativity around it. And I almost feel like sometimes that verges on kind of a sexism because it's like, you know, why why do we loathe all hate estrogen when it's, and we will also today talk about some of its bad sides, of course, but it is a, it's a mood-boosting hormone. So it has powerful effects on the brain. It boosts serotonin. It helps us sleep. Um, 
it sensitizes the body to insulin. So this is something very important, actually. We talked earlier in our conversation about a condition called insulin resistance. So estrogen helps to prevent that, which is actually why women, in general, women have are less likely to have insulin resistance compared to men. We're sort of protected by estrogen. Estrogen helps to build muscles, build bones. Um, the problem is, so those are all excellent things, and the problem is when estrogen goes too high, in my book I make the analogy of like estrogen as this super charismatic friend. It's like imagine someone you just, she's a, you know, a bubble of delight in your life. <laughs> You want her there, but after a while, like maybe after a couple of days, it's like, okay, I need, you know, I need to have some alone time now. So it, she's, she's like that. Like, and, and too much is too much estrogen is too stimulating in some bad ways. So obviously too much estrogen is bad for breasts. Too much estrogen builds up the uterine lining too much and, you know, can then cause heavy periods. Too much estrogen does also suppress thyroid to some degree. So we have to acknowledge that side of it. Um, but the, the, the solution is actually just to help your body to remove or safely detoxify or metabolize estrogen out of the body. And that all happens through the gut. So our gut and our bowel stool, that's how estrogen leaves the body. So we need to support that as much as possible. And then your body has mechanisms to, you know, detoxify it and remove it and hopefully prevent some of those symptoms of estrogen excess. It's just amazing to me how it all totally, I mean, it sounds kind of silly to say, but it all works together. I mean, duh, right? I mean, in a way, in a way, it's, you know, people are like, wow, it all works together. And then, you know, you think about it and you're like, yeah, we're these amazing beings. Of course it does. But it's been so, uh, you know, segmented segmented, and and things for such a while strange right i just it's amazing how it all works together i love it and the other thing that helps us with estrogen that kind of balances her is the calming for her calming friend progesterone which comes in after ovulation um which counterbalances a lot of those effects and so when estrogen stimulates cells progesterone calms them when estrogen suppresses thyroid for example progesterone boost thyroid (laughs) so it's you know we want to have we need to have progesterone coming in i'd say progesterone is i'm a big fan of estrogen but arguably even a bigger fan of progesterone and it's the lost hormone right it's the hormone that we have a lot of trouble holding on to it's the hormone that's completely shut down by hormonal birth control and there's no progesterone in hormonal birth control there's only these kind of drugs that are similar to progesterone but actually have many of the opposite effects of progesterone and also, as we age and move into our 40s, we find it harder and harder to make progesterone because it's actually quite hard to make. And here's to tie it into thyroid. We need adequate thyroid function to be able to make progesterone. So one of, that's why one of, the first, one of the other symptoms of underactive thyroid is period problems, heavy periods or irregular periods because the body's not ovulation is not happening, either not happening or not happening kind of well enough to make enough progesterone. You know, I'm visualizing, Dr. Laura, I'm a visual person. I'm visualizing like an orchestra, you know. I mean, all of these ebbs and flows and, you know, it's, it's really important for all of it to just play beautifully. And any time we add things in there, we alter the music and, and, of course, you know, with birth control, when you said that, it was like the music stops. Yeah. You know, okay, we're just going to take this out here. So yeah. one more segment, if you don't mind addressing. Yeah. When women uh, add testosterone, how do you feel about that? And, and, and the problems of, of adding testosterone to a woman on a regular basis. Because we see that a lot. We hear about that a lot, testosterone injections for women. What does that do to the orchestra, Dr. Laura? Yeah, it's a good question, and there are differing views on this. My approach, I don't feel comfortable with a woman taking testosterone. Um, it doesn't. It has a quite a narrow therapeutic window Is in that too much, and you're going to start to get you know, hair loss and acne and facial hair. 
And also testosterone is quite a potentially kind of negative effect on breast tissue, so I'm, I'm nervous about it. I have never once kind of advocated for women to take testosterone, but there's another hormone called DHEA, which is an adrenal hormone, which is um, an, another androgen. So women who are in a, a real situation of androgen deficiency, I guess, which would usually occur just before menopause or after menopause, could look at taking that. But yeah, beyond that, I don't, I don't it's, I'm not a fan. You know, I, I, if, if someone's going to take a, a natural hormone or a bioidentical hormone, I far prefer for them to take progesterone and maybe a little bit of estrogen if they're after menopause. I think that would, yeah, certainly, you know, for myself when I get to that point or, you know, for my patients, I, I sort of feel like that's a better fit. So DHEA is a better fit and testosterone is, is deserves a, a much more critical look before the addition. Would that be fair? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure some of your listeners maybe are taking it under their doctor's guidance, so I'm not necessarily saying that's completely wrong. No, 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 but there's a lot of women that, you know, especially loss of sex drive. And so, you know, I have a couple of of friends that uh, do testosterone injections, you know, and I'm like, oh, (laughs) I don't know. I don't like it. uh, It seems scary to me. You know, like you said, we have very small amounts and specific times that 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 a woman's body actually does that you know i don't know it it, it is scary look i'll just give a couple another option so if, if we're talking probably about postmenopausal women i think we would be looking at something like that um what my choice for libido for sex drive and just sexual function is either a small dose of vaginal estrogen or there's a new a lot of people now are using a vaginal DHEA, which again is another androgen, which really I think is a safe for yeah, that. that. Wow, yeah, me neither. Um, you should have her on. Um, there's her doctor. Um, and this, she's a gynecologist, Anna Quebeca, or no, I remember her last name. We had in front oh, of me. Anna, 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 oh, Anna 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 Quebeca. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know her? Yeah. Yeah. So she's she's very focused on. I, I think a lot of her work on sexual health and. I mean, so if you ever have her, you could ask her the question then about what she thinks about giving testosterone. I know she does advocate for giving vaginal DHEA, so that's just, yeah. Interesting. DHEA scares me. My DHEA was low. and uh, Mine is too. Mine's very low. You know, I've never had any kind of breakouts or I'm I'm afraid, you know, there's so many people who are like, don't start with this amount and don't do this amount. and, And, yeah, it's just a... DHEA and my doctor just t- looks at me like a deer in headlights, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I would say DHEA is safer than testosterone. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Oh, the orchestra, I'm telling you, ladies, we are, and that's such a beautiful thing. I mean, the the femininity and the, the orchestra and the way things ebb and flow and, and, oh, I don't know, I just think that's a beautiful thing. Hmm. We should embrace our... our our womanhood. I don't know. I'm, I'm yes, having an emotional I agree. day, ladies. We should embrace it. We need to be teaching that, and you're a wonderful voice for that. Thank you, Dr. L- Bryden. Laura, excuse me. I just yeah, I can't it, help it. It just called me Laura. Embrace it, and this is, I'll just go back to my, I have this little thought experiment that I've been doing with my audiences, or I'm, you know, even just trying to do myself, is to think of, Imagine that the human body, the standard normal version of the human body as a woman. Because for so long, we've sort of just, I think, even myself, you know, which is crazy. Like, sort of at some level, I just, we have this, we assume that the prototype of a human is a man, and then anything to do with a woman is just kind of extra complication. But I like to sort of turn that all around. It's like, let's just imagine that this is the way your standard human is. These hormones are part of it. And somehow for me that really you know changes the conversation it does change the conversation i love it yeah i agree that's a flower field moment right there it is a flower field moment i just want to sit and think about that for a moment it is (laughs) i don't want to be a man i want to be a woman i want to be a beautiful ebb and flow Mm-hmm. Hormonally fluctuating and women, I do. Mm-hmm. I like. To, I, I'm glad to be a woman. I feel like you know. Part of me feels sorry for men that they don't have estrogen. 
<laughs> this like buoyant kind of euphoria, lovely hormone that we get to have. They have a little yeah. bit of it, but <laughs> not like my we husband do. is. But I'll have to tell you a funny story with my husband. <laughs> so we have four kids, and and you know if the if the kids, which I'm grateful, just giving my shout out to my children, they are. Very easy, but you know, if I have that moment where I get frustrated and I'll, I'll, you know, shout or something, my husband will walk in and kind of look at me and he's like, "That's my job. Your job is to be, you know, fluffy, nurturing mommy. My job is to be the badass in the family." <laughs> it's, you know, it's funny because I do, I feel uncomfortable in those times. You know, it's like the, I get to a certain point, but you know, I kind of like to be the, here, let me hug you, and what's wrong, and you know what I mean. I like that. I do too. I'm good with that job. <laughs> ah, there's the hormones at play, right? The the fluffy nurturing and then the, mm-hmm. you know, protector. I'm going to come in and, you know, whop something. You know, I don't know. <laughs> uh, I'm in rare form today, ladies. Well, um, I wanted to jump in and just ask you really quickly, um, you know, um, we have men listeners for the show, um, particularly one in, uh, in mind I'm thinking of. And I just wanted to, to get your thoughts on uh, thyroid and hair loss, you know, men and hormones. Just really quickly before we, you know, before we let you go. I know we can't keep you forever. Sure. Okay. Well, um, for one thing, I mean, some hair, hair loss can be normal for men. So that depending on their genetics, um, they're going to get a male pattern hair loss. And I don't see that as health-related. You know, I think that can happen to the healthiest of men. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, even amongst men, there um, is evidence that having insulin resistance, so this is now circling back to the beginning of our conversation. I really obviously wanted to get, get this message across today. The condition of insulin resistance, which is a pre-diabetic condition, um, can worsen hair loss in both men and women. And it does that because it essentially ex- exposes the body to the hair follicles to more relatively more activated male hormone. So for men, um, well, I guess obviously if there is a thyroid issue, treat that and take thyroid hormone as required. But I guess the next step, if they feel like they're having more hair loss than they would expect given their genetics or their family history, can consider whether they have insulin resistance. And that means having a blood test for insulin, not just for blood glucose, but actually determining if, yeah, insulin resistance is present. It's a huge issue in society. Like, it's estimated to be affecting close to 50% of people. So, obviously, this is why I keep coming back to it. It's, mm-hmm. And I see it amongst my own patients. It's, um, it's a hormonal issue that affects everything and can definitely show up in the hair. So, yeah. Interesting. And, and most uh, physicians, as a general rule, will stop at fasting glucose, and you know, know some people might be lucky enough to get an A1C, and that just stops there. I know. Well, the A1C so is better than just a glucose, but but yeah, the fasting glucose may be normal for you. May you could have insulin resistance for decades, and the fasting glucose stays normal until the until the very end when you finally go that next step to diabetes. So by the time it goes to diabetes and high blood glucose, it's, you know, not too late, but it's it's been a long time. You know, you could have, potentially people could have intervened or had treatment much earlier. Interesting. And you see so many thyroid patients uh, with insulin resistance. There is a bit of, there's a bit of interaction because actually T3 improves insulin sensitivity. So, being um, having a, a low T3 or functionally functionally low T3 puts people at greater risk of insulin resistance. So they're not completely separate issues. You know, they um, right. there's a little bit of they interaction there. Over. Yep. So very interesting. Mm-hmm. We need to really pay more attention to insulin resistance. As you said, 50% of the population. That's a pretty big number. So. It's approaching 50. I maybe don't, yeah, quote me. It's, it's right, close. Okay. You know, it's, right. it's depending on the age group, it's, it's getting up there. It, it increases, insulin resistance increases with age. So it's hmm. certainly, a, a, you know, a sizable proportion of us in society. Now, I know, I know you talked about, uh, of course, uh, removing sugar, but there, are there any other dietary recommendations that you have for people 
uh, that might be insulin resistance. Of course, the you know you talked about fructose and sugar, but any other yeah. ones as well. So beyond that, the next step after fructose is cut way back to just a few pieces of whole fruit. Then the next thing to look at is other carbohydrates. So I always start with breakfast. This is just the last few years I've just been seeing the, how well this works with patients is just to focus on having a low-carb breakfast. So protein plus vegetables for breakfast. And that keeps insulin, insulin low. Because as soon as we eat any kind of carbohydrate, including sugar, um, insulin goes high. So we want the hormone insulin to have a chance to come down. And it, you know, it has a better chance to do that if you have a, a lower-carb breakfast. So it could be eight, like an omelet with some vegetables. Or I've started having like a bit of leftover meat from dinner before with some vegetables and and then um and then you can have some introduce have some starch later on with the other meals but um even then not not having a whole plate full of pasta but rather having you know the meat and vegetables plus maybe a little serving of something potato or something with that just to feel full because going too low carb too can be a massive problem for thyroid you may know that from any other guests have talked about that but that's something I see. If people go embrace a very low-carb diet, that can have negative consequences for thyroid. So I'm pretty careful with that. Um, now, are you uh, just to, to, to before we let you go and enjoy the day with your friends? I'm yes. so sorry. Yeah. I just I love your articles so much. I'm such a big yeah. fan. But um, and I completely forgot when I said I'm such a big fan where I was going with that, <laughs> which article it was. Oh, there we go. Well, I'm I'm back now. Um, yeah. You know, we hear so much about no gluten and no this and go paleo and what are your thoughts on that, Dr. Laura? If you're if you're comfortable answering that, we we love especially people that Dan and I refer to as super smarties, which yeah. we put you in that category. <laughs> we love to hear their thoughts on you know all of this, uh, all these particular guidelines, so to speak, that that are given to thyroid patients in particular. We love to hear. The super smarties opinion. So gluten well, and, and paleo and all that, how do you feel about that? Well, um, in general, I'm, I'm in the camp of, yeah, I think gluten can be a problem. <laughs> um, it, so we're talking about the, obviously the majority of thyroid patients have Hashimoto's, yes. which is an autoimmune condition, which the evidence, I believe, is pretty strong that gluten can worsen that doesn't cause mm-hmm. it but it can certainly it, it's upsetting gluten is upsetting to the immune system and mm-hmm. so when there's an autoimmune condition removing gluten can really help things now it sort of depends on the with my approach to Hashimoto's it depends on the degree of autoimmunity like just how upset is the immune system and I do use you know look at the level of the antibodies to sort of gauge that and maybe look at if they have any additional, any other autoimmune diseases besides that, like you know, right. psoriasis or other things and like that. And that is so logical. <laughs> I yeah. like that. And we never hear that, but that's, you know, like you said, how upsetting yeah. is the immune system. Interesting. And, okay. And mm-hmm. then if someone, is, if someone is very autoimmune, and especially if they were picking up any gluten antibodies on a blood test, then I might say, look, unfortunately you're in the category where you just really can't afford to have gluten like any. So there'd be a few people where I say you just have to strictly avoid it, and that, you know, that can start to shift things with the, with the thyroid. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't make a blanket statement to every thyroid patient, and I certainly wouldn't make a blanket statement to every person. You know, I think some people are lucky enough to be able to tolerate gluten, and that's great for them. But right. you know, it for the those people that do need to avoid it, yeah, it can be pretty important. And I guess that. Similar, to, you know, it's interesting. Paleo. I am. I'm, I'm a fan of just kind of the the simple diet, like I talked about. You know, the meat and vegetables, kind of meat. What we you know right. call meat and three veg, and and portion. I heard the, you mention portion sizes are also, you know, they play a big role in in uh, in many things. I don't, in, especially in the United States, we have huge portion sizes. My God, like literally, like four times what someone really really needs to eat. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, no, I, I don't, with my own patients, I don't count for them so much on amounts, but, but, but yeah, um, well, just back to portion sizes, I will say one other thing about fructose, because I just really want to get the message home about sugar. Um, one of the effects of fructose 
and insulin resistance on the body is abnormally increased appetite. So if people are you know, just kind of never feeling full and eating more than they need to, sometimes it can be just a marker of an underlying metabolic issue. Right. Um, but that said also, I think, yeah, we need to be careful. Not, I, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Like in some restaurants where they just bring you enough to feed like three people, obviously we don't want to be right. doing that. Yeah. No, right. definitely not. Um, but but I love that you said uh, you know you don't you're not you don't want to make a blanket statement because Tiffany and I are always kind of driving home the idea that we are all bio individual and there is no one way for everybody. There's no one magic pill. There's no one diet. Of course, paleo is helpful, and of course, avoiding gluten is helpful. And you know there are different levels of that. And um, but I love that you said that because that's exactly what we. We try to preach on the show, you know, we're like, just listen to your own body. You know, of course, those are the, those are the bad guys to the autoimmune, to the immune system, but listen to your body. So thank you for sharing that. Mm-hmm. And listen to your, to your very amazing functional uh, doctor as well, who can yes. be extremely helpful in navigation for sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Makes it much easier. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, so what then plan yeah. for today are you going yeah, we want to know what we want to know what yes. you're doing today yeah <laughs> actually i just um i just came out from an overnight hike with some friends we were out for a couple nights in the mountains and then we stopped off at this one of my friends lake houses and yeah i'll probably go for a swim after i talk to you it was just it worked out well because i i knew i had my conversation with you guys and i thought well there's a phone there so i can make that work make that all happen well great yeah, yeah. Well, we are so thankful that you took the time with us this morning. Uh, thank you so, so very much. And we don't want to keep you from this, from your friends in this amazing location. So <laughs> summer day to go and be healthy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah go out and yeah, enjoy thank the you. weather. I really enjoyed talking with you both. It's been great. Thank oh, you so much. And thank you for everything that you do and your amazing mm-hmm. articles. And uh, of course, we will tell everybody uh, where to find you. And uh, you have so many amazing. Yes. And the book. Yeah, and, and I'll just say, I'll mention to you guys, actually, maybe I'll send you a copy. I'm just about to release a second edition of Period Repair Manual. Oh, um, we'd love to. We'd love to have one. That's mm. all kind of expanded and revised. It's actually currently with an endocrinologist who's giving me some a bit of kind of fact-checking on some of it, which I'm really grateful for. And, um, yeah, and I've got a whole new chapter on um, perimenopause. And just like there's just a lot of – and I expanded the thyroid section a little bit. So I'm That's excited great. about that. Oh, Great. we would love that. That would be amazing. Yeah. I, like I said, I'm a huge fan. I don't want to gush too much, are. but I'm a. <laughs> <laughs> I've read your blog for for years. I'm just a oh, huge, huge fan. So, uh, well, thank you again so very much, and go have a beautiful, wonderful yeah. day with the water. I'm. I'm yeah, and pining. you too. Are you doing? Are you doing something <laughs> summery today? Something. No, I'm not. Um, we are we are heading out to to drive to Arkansas for a little family kind of get together, mm-hmm. and so we're packing all day today. But we will be, you know, in in the thick of it, in the you know the woods and the river, and no, it has no Wi-Fi where we're going. So I'm headed that direction. Oh, nice. that's awesome! I kind right? of love that. No Wi-Fi. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Great thing. And I have a doctor's appointment, but you know, yeah. I'm grateful for that too. Yeah. So we're going to live vicariously through you and your swimming. We yeah. are. <laughs> I'm going to be thinking about you in these beautiful in this beautiful area, having fun with your friends and the lake, and that's yeah. good enough for me. <laughs> me too. Well, have a great day. Thank you well, so much. Yeah. You too. All right. Take care. Bye bye. You too. Bye bye now. Oh my gosh, she is sounds incredibly sweet. And mm-hmm. like I said, I'm a I'm a huge fan. I really am. It's amazing to be able to talk to her. She is just super super smarty in my opinion. She is. For sure. She I'm is. Big fan and, of her blog. And we've been trying. I've been trying to get her on the show for a while. So this is really really neat to have her on. So and she covered yeah, lots so, of lots of good topics. So that was really neat. Oh, I imagine we could talk to her about many things. And I'm mm-hmm. so excited to get her book. I know. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> so you can, of course, find all things Dr. Amazing Laura Bryden at, at Laura, spelled L-A-R-A, Bryden, B-R-I-D-E-N, dot com. And um, 
and her, her book? amazing book. Yep, period repair manual. You can pick that up on Amazon. You can uh, probably yes, get it I'm from excited. her website as well. Yes, and uh, a second and website, edition coming yeah. out. So be sure to to keep your eyes out for that. As always, a very big thank you to our listeners. And if you get a free moment and you enjoy our shows, we would absolutely be thrilled to have a review on iTunes. So you can either go straight to iTunes and leave us a, a little thought, or you can go to thyroidradio.com and uh, scroll down, and there's a little place where you can. It'll take you straight to the site. So we would love to hear what you have to say. And if you've missed any of the radio shows, um, you can download them on iTunes and, and Stitcher and Google Play. We're pretty much all over. We'd love to go with you on your morning walk or in the car on the way to work. So uh, just download and listen. Absolutely. Please be sure to check out Thyroid Nation Essentials at thyroidnation.com. Dan and I created those just wonderful, clean, preservative, synthetic-free skincare. Uh, designed specifically with uh, thyroid thrivers in mind. And uh, that's Thyroid Nation Essentials at thyroidnation.com. I forgot what I was going to say there. <laughs> Whoops. I know. <laughs> and make sure to follow Thyroid Nation on all the social media platforms. We're pretty much everywhere, as I said before. And check out the Hoshis and Grays Facebook support group. We share all the upcoming guests and past guests, and there's lots of people chatting and questions, so check it out. Yeah, and when you ask questions, we have doctors every now and again that pop in there and, and answer questions, which we are so very grateful for. To, mm-hmm. so, uh, yeah, it's a wonderful forum. Of course, Dana and I, like we said, always want to remind you, uh, Dr. Laura did nothing but just confirm that, again, that wellness is a journey and takes continual maintenance and evaluation. You have to be listening to your own body. It is unique to you, and please be mindful of what it is telling you. Stay plugged in. Stay plugged into your own body. Yep. This is Dana, your Thyroid Nation Green Gatika. And Tiffany Maladnich. Bringing the collective voice of thyroid thrivers worldwide so that together, united we heal. Thanks, guys. Next week, another super smarty, Dr. Christine Schaffner. Schaffner? Schaffner. And uh, we'll be talking brain health and toxins and all kinds of good stuff. So be sure to, to tune in. Have a wonderful week. Thank you.